and welcome to this Drift Source podcast, Living the Trade Life Cycle. I'm Julia Schiefer, the founder and editor of DriftSource.com. Legacy systems often get a bad rap, but do newer technologies such as AI and DLT really answer all of your post-trade woes? In this episode of the Drift Source podcast, I have with me Torstone Technologies CEO, Brian Collins, who's going to be talking with me today about some of the practical strategies that financial organizations can consider when making significant improvements to their operational processing with, of course, ideally not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're also going to be talking a little bit about how some changes can be made to the middle office to extend the life of legacy systems and, of course, the role that APIs and other technologies play in establishing a flexible and agile post-trade operation. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Hi, Julia. It's great to be catching up again. So, Brian, before we begin, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Of course, I'm CEO and founder of Torstone Technology, and it's our 10-year anniversary uh, this year just gone. I've been in banking for too many years to mention, but uh, actually in banks previously, and uh, Torstone obviously a vendor selling into those banks, so uh, moving certainly from uh, one side of the fence to the other, which has been great fun over the last 10 years. Well, congratulations on that milestone, Brian. Thank you. So I started at the beginning about legacy systems, and this comes up a lot when I speak to operational professionals, particularly on the sell side. Jumping right into it, Brian, can you tell me why legacy systems always get the blame for everything? Of course. Well, whilst legacy systems are really good at what they do, they're generally not as flexible to change. And in particular, if they've not kept up with advances in technology, like being cloud-based, for example, Legacy systems tend to be much more costly to run than cloud-based systems. They also need to be provisioned for that peak processing. And actually, sometimes they even hit those peak times in, in high volatility. So there's no provision for them to scale dynamically like a cloud-based system. So hence the higher cost, because uh, you've got a much higher cost base there. The other drawback is the fact that legacy systems are batch-based in their nature. So I'm sure we'll talk about this later as well, but the changing environment that we have around, whether it's regulatory or sort of market changes or new asset classes, uh, there's a huge need for real-time event-driven platforms going forward. So in short, I guess legacy systems are both costly and inflexible. Not a good combination for post-trade these days. Absolutely right. So... We've talked about why they get blamed. What is the value of legacy systems and what is really the business case for keeping them intact despite these flaws that you just outlined? Yeah, legacy systems are generally feature rich. So they've been built over decades they've got market knowledge embedded in them. And quite often they have your own business processes embedded in them, uh, particularly Sometimes that knowledge is nowhere else in the organization. So it really is encaptured in those legacy systems. So very difficult to, to remove, but they are good at what they do. And, you know, they do that pretty well. Uh, we talked about some of the disadvantages just now. So one of the reasons they become difficult and costly maintain is because of that restriction of knowledge embedded in them. And 
the cost balance is starting to swing the other way so that the cost of maintaining and changing the legacy systems is now outweighing quite considerably the cost of replacing them with a more flexible and cloud-based platform. But as you say, we don't want to throw the uh, the baby out with the bathwater. So it's particularly important in larger organizations as well, where they can't change everything at once. So even if there's an appetite, there's a cost efficiency argument is clear, it's still difficult to do and has to be done over time. So hopefully we, we can talk a little bit about the right way, but there's a lot of value in the functionality that has been built over decades in those legacy systems. Yeah, I think the not throwing the baby out with the bathwater is a very apt analogy here, given everything that you've already um, shared with us about the challenges and the benefits of, of legacy systems or the value that they hold. You mentioned going into detail, Brian, so that's a perfect segue into what my next question would be. And, and that's really, let's take a look at this through the lens of a market participant. Can you explain how you would work with a market participant or potential client to really make some operational improvements to their entire post-trade process operation whilst keeping the legacy back office system intact? So let's start with some of the high-level drivers for change. We've always seen cost pressures dominating the agenda that we just, just mentioned, but now more than ever. And firms need to consolidate their operations to save those additional costs. So there's the cost we've just mentioned before of the actual technology, but also operational efficiency is key. So those consolidations can come in uh, several forms. You know, one is consolidating across asset classes. So like bringing equity and fixed income together or consolidating across countries, across region or even globally onto a single platform. And finally, consolidating uh, across cycle functions. So middle office and back office, bringing those closer together can also bring efficiencies. So that's the cost base. The second pressure is really coming for those market changes. So new asset classes, for example, the cryptocurrencies, more generally digital assets becoming more popular. The other side is the regulatory change. So uh, we all, all know the sort of T plus one, the settlement cycle reducing to T plus one in the US and Canada uh, with those deadlines approaching us in 2024. And I'm sure Europe will follow uh, suit sort of further down the line. So those are the types of changes that are, are driving the need to move away from legacy. So one key strategy that we've seen recently from many of our clients and prospective clients is to focus on the efficiency in the middle office space. So easing pressure on the back office, which can help delay the sort of move of the legacy system, but also prepares the groundwork for that inevitable legacy back office replacement. And how, I guess, using the more modern, flexible middle office to help solve some of those drivers for change. So firstly, reducing the cost, you know, if you can uh, combine the asset classes onto a single middle office platform, and that's some of the projects that we're uh, you know, right in the middle of now, particularly in the securities area, bringing those equity and fixed income together. Operationally, that makes it much, uh, much smoother. And they can then feed one or more legacy systems. So if the, if the back office systems are asset class aligned, you can still consolidate in the middle office and get a lot of value from that. And secondly is streamlining the processing on trade date. So we 
talked about T plus one, but making that trade date processing real time in the middle office so that the trades feeding to the back office are both more timely, but also importantly, a better quality of data, which will lead to less settlement failures and therefore easing the move to the T plus one settlement cycle. So, Brian, you've outlined the strategies and also, more importantly, the drivers and pressures that are driving those strategies for reducing the cost and the streamlining. Can we talk a little bit about technology here? Because um, it's something that everyone is really investing in right now. We're talking about investing in. And uh, there's a lot of newer technologies out there as well. So, Brian, what role does modern technology, in your view, play in this legacy saving strategy? Of course, and I think the modern technology for me really means real time and cloud based, which gives both flexibility and, and speed. It does allow a basic system to be set up in days and weeks rather than months. So even the deployment is speeded up. But key to prolonging the legacy system is surrounding it on all sides with that flexible platform. So in particular, capturing the data in real time before it feeds into the legacy system. Uh, also being able to extract that relevant information from the legacy system, but equally importantly, being able to combine both those, both the inputs and uh, I guess the resultant data from the legacy system together, because combining that together gives you a much more flexible way of looking at your data in, in an open way. So you're maintaining the function of the legacy system as, as an engine, but you're surrounding it to give you much more flexible access. And then leaving the legacy system as an engine to do what it is good at and has decades of, uh, of functionality sort of built in. And that's certainly our strategy going forward. Absolutely. If something already works, you can improve it with these surrounding technologies, as you said, but you don't necessarily need to change the foundation if it's, I mean, another analogy, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Indeed. And I think it is. They, they generally are pretty good day after day doing what they do. Sticking with technology, newer technology, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to call it a little bit longer. Can you talk to me about the role of APIs in no-code and low-code? How would they add value to the strategy that you've outlined? Yeah. And actually, I think, so these, I guess, newer modern platforms really cover several levels of configuration and integration. And the quicker and easier that can be done, obviously the, the less cost of replacing or at least surrounding the existing systems. I'll split into, I guess, three to four layers. The first is the no code. So I think lots of systems have got users being able to access and change directly into a system to alter the flow and, and trade. And we have a dynamic model that allows you to add even attributes that then are visible to the end user, but you can use to give control to the end user of how the platform is processing particular trade flows. And again, that's just speeding up to give that to the end user. The low code environment, I guess, is the next level down that we have. And again, it's a dynamic layer, so it could be changed on the fly if needed. Uh, you have to be cautious because it's also very powerful. But either our professional services teams can change that. And again, very dynamic, so quick to do. Or we also give access to the clients to view and add data and change that processing flow, particularly if they've got some technical or semi-technical people involved with running the system. And it's a powerful point to give that change into the hands of our clients 
and even our own professional services team to make that change and that integration much more speedy and specific to the client's environment. But we mustn't forget the code. <laughs> so, you know, all platforms, the core of every platform is what the professional developers have built. And anything remotely complex really needs to be developed and tested by the professional development team. But now modern systems are more open. That leads me on to well-documented, defined APIs really helps that integration work happen, not only between ourselves to be able to do that, but also our clients' development teams. So that helps to really integrate. So finally, I think APIs sort of a double mention in the fact that APIs also help us standardize interfaces with other vendor systems too. So, you know, we've out of the box integrations to several front office systems, several standard other vendor systems uh, downstream as well. So those APIs are, are really helping both from people pulling vendor systems together themselves into their specific client environment or integrating with their own systems. One of the things I would like to mention on that is for high tech or very large organizations, we've seen when they have their own development teams, our API strategy has actually been one of the key reasons they've chosen our platform because they know themselves that they don't want to outsource everything to a vendor. They want to keep certain things proprietary and in-house. And this allows our clients to have that development capacity to integrate with our product not like historically where you've got a black box and can't access every part of our system can be accessed and data extracted in real time to feed their other uh, either in-house or other vendor systems you know such as i think risk management is a key one to be able to pull in different data from different systems to sort of manage that overall or into generic reporting suites that a larger company may have may have already put a lot of effort into pulling information from other other vendor systems too so sort of you know a data lake as it were of reporting suite and we can also feed that through these apis uh you know in the past we've always talked about best of breed strategies versus in-house bills have you seen that change yes very much uh, and i think i've seen that particularly i think as we're dealing with larger clients as well over time the commodity as it were uh, base platforms i think people want to mutualize those costs and i think that's a perfect way of doing that is a vendor providing that but there are small uh, areas you know maybe certain calculations or something that is unique to that client that is their secret source and they don't necessarily want that to be available to everyone else and i think before you would have to completely surround that in your own system whereas now with with particularly with api strategies you can tap in just to the right point where that bit of calculation or that bit of knowledge can remain with the clients and we tap into it and, and i think the apis allow that data flow to happen in both directions so not only are we always feeding data out but we can reach out for a calculation that the clients produced and actually pull those results back into the system and then obviously carry on processing. So I think that change over the last few years has, has been quite dramatic. Uh, and I've also seen that change starting to happen in the much larger organizations where they're, uh, I, I call it the component model that people are pulling in different components for vendors, doing a little bit of themselves uh, of the glue, 
but also that little bit of extra secret sauce that they want to keep uh, as, as part of their uniqueness. So we've touched on no-code, low-code APIs and all the different technologies. There's, of course, a new family of newer technologies, for lack of a better term, AI, ML, robotics, etc. Can you talk to me a little bit about your view on if these newer technologies are useful in practice for the post-trade space? And what are the pros and cons of, of their use right now? Of course. And although we've seen amazing advances in AI and ML, such as speech recognition and even visual recognition, I, I get quite scared when my phone pops up myself and my partner um, repeatedly. And I'm sure we've all, all seen the same thing. So there's obviously a lot of visual face recognition going on in the background. But I think for post-trade processing, I am a little sceptical. Its use in that area, I think going forward, we'll see some innovation there. But I think fundamentally, post-trade is a rules-based, calculation-based engine that's needed, albeit flexible. Uh, in fact, I read a, a McKinsey report quite a few years ago now that indicated the vast majority of cost savings, certainly uh, in terms of automation, it really comes from that basic modern platform. So it's cloud-based, it's flexible to create simple automation and therefore the efficiency gains. Uh, having said that, I think moving to a modern platform does future-proof yourself uh, for advances in that area because I know our platform consolidates from a number of asset classes, for example, uh, you know, a number of geographies. So for our clients, it does have a very high quality data. It's reconciled with the outside world. It tends to have the whole history of transactions that they've done for their clients. And it's very open access in modern systems. You know, you can tap into different parts of that system. So I think bolting on AI and uh, ML techniques in the future, I think would help gain insights into, you know, perhaps your customer's trading pattern. And that feedback loop into, the, you know, to the front office and, and front office sales, I think that could be very valuable going forward. But for pure cost-saving efficiency automation, I think we've already got the, got the right technology there. There are constantly new drivers and market changes that firms need to adapt their post-trade process to support. And, and Brian, you've outlined those already. This, of, of course, includes compliance, new regulation, rewrites, and, you know, T plus one, for instance. Focusing on the bigger trend that has really been a focal point for the last couple of years, which is digital assets. Can you explain how improvements to the post-trade operation can be easily made or made at all to support this new asset class? With the first key point, in order to deal with digital assets, you need a real-time platform. A settlement can be almost instantaneous. Um, it's certainly, you know, T plus zero, T plus zero minutes, or if not seconds. The other thing is also is trading is 24 by 7. So there is no room for downtime, for batch processing. It's a continuous process across those seven seven days as well as the the time zones so the systems need to be available and processing in parallel with any end of day cutoff so we structure our accounting and everything in days but there needs to be continual processing while you're doing that the second point i think is it also needs to be flexible enough to support digital assets while keeping the same level of regulatory control 
as the traditional assets. So the closer controls and processing flows that exist with the traditional asset classes, they really need to be transferred over and, and the same processes around the digital assets. So although digital assets are backed by DLT and blockchain and you've got security of the consistency there, I think certainly people still need to process and reconcile in the same way. Expectation is the data quality will be higher and therefore the breaks will be less and the efficiency will be greater, but those checks have still got to, have still got to be done. And I think particularly in a regulated environment, uh, that's not going to go any, away anytime soon. So I think there's certainly the modern systems can improve and actually you really need that sort of modern base to deal with these new asset classes. But our, our strategy we really want that single platform to be able to cope with both the digital assets and the traditional, because I think a lot of the operational flows and efficiencies come from keeping that together. Absolutely. And I mean, all these changes that we're talking about really future-proof the post-trade process, and this is the future, the combination of the digital and traditional finance space. So, you know, why not get the foundation right now to support whatever strategies come along or new trends come along? Completely. And I think actually the, the problems that you have in the digital asset space will help the traditional asset space uh, become more efficient as well. So I think there's benefits in, in both directions. And on that note, Brian, my final question to you is looking ahead to 2023. In your view, what are the new drivers or existing drivers that will continue to push firms to invest in their post-trade operations? I think we've cut the basis there. I think whilst we can see that digital assets, the almost instantaneous settlement is coming, the vast majority of the post-trade processing focus will be on that shortening of the settlement cycle to T plus one anyway. So there's a huge amount of activity that needs to go on in the next one to two years. Um, this will bring very similar themes needing to move to real time rather than batch processing. And I think we're on that journey. We're very passionate about that journey is bringing all of that into the single platform. So certainly if, if anybody wants to learn more about this, we've got plenty of blogs and white papers on our, on our website at torstonetechnology.com um, or please give us a call. Yes. And for our listeners, we'll definitely include some of those links in our show notes page so you can access uh, the URLs there for your further reading, as Brian mentioned. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your insight and expertise with us today and also giving us a little bit of a look ahead to 2023. It's a pleasure, Julia, and uh, great to speak to you again. For our listeners, again, please go to our show notes page for more information on this topic, including some of the links that we've mentioned. This podcast is part of a wider digital editorial series, so you can also go to DerivSource.com for more insight on this topic, which covers legacy systems, digital innovation, and digital assets. Thank you for listening, and join us next time. <music>